Hello, party people, and welcome back to I Haven't Heard That Name in Years, my silly memoir. Uh, so this week I decided to do a little bit of a recap episode. This is kind of a halftime thing because at this point in the memoir we have gotten to uh, approximately a little bit more than halfway. We're cruising at about 1920 and I am sitting here speaking to you at a nice little 35 years old. Uh, so I decided to go back in and kind of fill in the gaps with a few extra stories that might have fallen by the wayside that I might not have talked about as much, a couple of things that were influential. Uh, if you're more of an interview person, uh, you can skip this. Or if you're a completist, you can totally listen to this. Um, and I am happy to report from a plug standpoint that I am now on Blue Sky. If you're one of those people that got one of those fancy codes, no, I don't have a code, unfortunately. And now I have a wait list for codes because I've been posting about being on Blue Sky too much. But if you are on Blue Sky, if you're one of those uh, awesome skating people, which I, God damn it, I love so much that the developers of like Jack Dorsey doesn't want people to call them skeets and re-skeets and yet they absolutely will never stop and that that is incredible but i am harkets hannah there and i am also uh harkets hannah on tiktok per usual i'm hark underscore it's hannah on instagram and i'm not really on uh i'm not going to be on twitter that much i mean i'm still harkets hannah there but as long as i have blue sky uh I'm going to be real, my engagement's uh, not really that much different there, even though I have a tiny fraction of the followers on there, and I don't have to click on a weird X app and see a bunch of people's transphobic bullshit. So, we may or may not have uh, jumped off the Twitter bus. But yeah, find me on Blue Sky. Uh, also, I am now on a Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast, which is behind a paywall as bonus content for a Dragon Ball Z podcast. I know, great things happening for my career, but this is some fun stuff with me and Lawson Leong, co-producer and star of Brooklyn Battle Comedy, We Make Movies, the series I got on IWTV. Uh, and uh, we do that together because I love bullshitting about anime shows uh, that I have not seen in uh pushing 20 years i i'm having a, such a, a fun time with that so if you do want to listen to that uh you have to subscribe to the patreon for balling out super a dragon ball z podcast and then once you get behind that paywall you can listen to this Yu-Gi-Oh podcast if you're a completist um you will be nerdy enough that that might appeal to you so we have that and then kate's bunker live continues to run uh bi-weekly on comedy hub live on twitch at 10 o'clock eastern with a whole lot of nonsense uh, me and lawson actually uh, went on there as uh, kate and uh, turk higginbottom and claimed that pokemon was based on actual events and then season one of the podcast of course produced by this network new queer order is available on all podcast platforms and audible and the kate's bunker store does exist for now i may be losing the subscription though so uh, get those shirts while they're hot or not hot, because they're t-shirts. And please, enjoy this uh, little ramble of various events in my life and situations in my life that I missed while I was interviewing everyone else until this point. Roll the cool music.
welcome back to I Haven't Heard That Name in Years, solo edition, uh, recap edition, halftime show, midlife crisis, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so this episode, I am just going to be rolling through a bunch of stuff that I may or may not have missed, as uh, we've previously established. A lot of the reason this podcast exists is because I have a memory like a cheesecloth with holes in it. Even more holes, maybe Swiss cheese. I don't know. Cheese analogies? Cheese metaphors? Who knows? It's cheesy. Uh, So uh, what I am going to do today is I've written a bunch of bullets of things that I may or may not have forgotten, and I am going to rely on my cool producer, uh, B. Jordan, to omit anything that I might have repeated, or everyone is just going to have to hear a funky story again. And that's the way it's going to be. So it's been amazing doing this project, and I am under no illusion that I'm going to cover everything. In particular, you know, there's, there's of course, things I leave out, you know, like major medical traumas uh, generally leave those out. Uh, Relationship issues generally leave those out. Uh, Just uh, a lot of things like that that I generally leave out just because it's uh, not 100% necessary and uh, this is more of like the beginning research phases of a thing that might turn into a memoir later. If later I sell my life rights and it becomes something they're like, oh, we need a dramatic incident, maybe then. I will tell them all of the times I got my heart broken or got sent to the hospital. But for this project, we don't need to do any of that. I have more than enough life without uh, bringing the room down. Regardless of whatever room or open space you may be sitting in, I don't need to bring it down. It's not necessary. I don't have to. It's my show, goddammit. So, what to go through? Uh, What have we missed? So, from childhood... Uh, meaning up until high school, a couple of bullets. Uh, first one, dance classes. Not sure how much I touched on the whole uh, suburban dance studio thing. I think I mentioned that I did it, maybe not in insane detail, but in particular, there there is one teacher that I definitely wanted to bring up, uh, Monsell Jordan, who was fucking phenomenal. But I got to give you the whole story first. I used to go, you know, like starting. Like, early I was going to the dance classes, you know, like, the, the when you're, like, four and barely know where you are, shuffling around in a tutu uh, aimlessly on a stage. Uh, parents are mostly just there to wave at their kid, you know. Uh, it's not really dancing so much as, like, shuffling and, you know, a cute photo op for everything. I think that, uh, you know, I started doing that, you know, like when I was in Ben Salem, like when I was talking to my mom, like ages, like, uh, you know, like three through six or something like that. And, you know, I kept doing it uh, till I'm going to say like early junior high. I wasn't doing dance and martial arts at the same time. But there is one teacher I definitely want to shout out, uh, Monsell Jordan. Uh, he works or he worked uh, with Remy Harris's dance company at the time. Um, and I think he's still around. I haven't attempted to look him up or anything. I'm like, yeah, I love him. But I, of course, recorded this without uh, trying to check out where he is. Um, it was just this amazing uh time and place thing because, you know, suburban dance studios, you generally have 
a couple of teachers uh, that have been there for a while, and then a couple of like high school students, college students, something like that. And it was mostly, you know, women that are super into dance. Uh, but you know, it's like, without lack of a better term, you know, we got a lot of white ladies teaching hip hop and we got a lot of uh, white and suburban humans uh, with yoga pants and buns and all that other stuff teaching all the classes, really. Uh, so once upon a time, though, at one of these dance studios where this is the general staff and, you know, general clientele even, you know, Abington's a pretty diverse area, but the uh, staff of this dance studio was not, we had one man uh, one jacked African-American man with dreadlocks with a serious dance pedigree on him that became a hip-hop teacher there. And what he decided to do was to tell us little white girls that we were going to learn the real history of hip-hop dance. So he was teaching us uh, electric boogaloo, b-boying, all of that good stuff, popping and locking, like, all of that shit in uh, an environment where it absolutely never would have landed. Otherwise, we were warming up to James Brown, 99% sure the uh, recital was Earth, Wind, and Fire, if not something similar. I might be getting it mixed up with one of the tap teachers that might have done an Earth, Wind, and Fire thing. Um, but there's a large catalog of, like, funk and early hip-hop that I, and just early hip-hop dance in general, like, I would not have known what Electric Boogaloo is, I would not have known what the fuck b-boying or pop-locking is at all, were it not for this, uh, fluke in the system that was, uh, Monsell Jordan, uh, and I remember also that, uh, it's just one of these, uh, awesome moments of uh, me and just not giving a shit about anything. He invited us to take a, a hip-hop workshop in Philadelphia, and at the time, uh, this is when I still had no real concept on how people are supposed to dress, or I was at least intentionally uh, flubbing that, and I remember that I showed up in a fedora, um, not even a cool fedora, this like a crumpled thrift shop of fedora that did not totally fit my head, braided pigtails, um, big like knee length cargo pants and like some kind of tank top and I left the hat on the entire dance workshop and somehow everyone thought it was great or they thought it was great and they were laughing at me behind my back but I did this entire intensive hip-hop workshop in Philadelphia I uh, dressed like that mad young couldn't have been older than because uh, th this wouldn't have been junior high yet so I had to you know still be maybe like sixth seventh grade something like that um Pure madness. Uh, so shout out to my parents for dropping me off for that and that awesome memory. And shout out to him because, uh, <laughs> hell yeah. No, get a job at a white-ish suburban dance studio and just fucking teach a bunch of little girls about electric boogaloo. Do it, dude. That That is the one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Never gonna forget it. I have summer camps written down here. Uh, not 100% sure why I decided to put that in the notes. I, I kind of like hastily jotted all these down earlier. You know, there's not 
that much to report. Uh, I mean, it was it definitely played into my love of uh, ceramics that, you know, I put visual art down for later because that's not something I talked about much in the, the childhood and high school episodes. Uh, but that was when, you know, I got really into clay and sculpting and stuff like that. Um, there's uh, one summer camp I went to where I had the distinct honor of being the uh, kind of they called it CIT, uh, counselor in training. Uh, but my friend's uh, older brother used to be one of the camp counselors in uh, Wildercraft. It was air quotes, it's called air quotes, Wildercraft, uh, meaning the, you know, like nature walks and stuff like that, you know, like making s'mores. Uh, and then they, they also called it high adventure because they had like climbing stuff and zip lines, all that cool stuff. Uh, I had a, a pretty interesting summer where I was a CAT and one of my uh, older, my, one of my friend's older brothers was working that job. And I am never going to forget that just because it was one of those things that you grow up and realizing, oh, these were two stoner high school dudes that landed this job and they were kind of like fucking around on the clock as much as they possibly could. And I was just bringing these guys firewood. That was pretty much it. All these dudes wanted me to do was bring them firewood, help out with menial tasks, and not be a snitch. And it was party to a lot of things. Like, I got to see uh, somebody throw a can of bug spray, aerosol can of bug spray into the fire and watch it explode into a green fireball. That was cool. And it was because the dude's like, I'm bored. And another dude goes, I'll make it exciting and throws it into the fire. Boom. I also uh, shot cans with a BB gun. I have not seen a BB gun before or since. They definitely weren't supposed to be handing us those. But thanks, friends. And then uh, just one of... I don't know, favorite moment in life in general, like one just story I rattle off to people when we talk about camp counselors fucking around. There was one day where we had this group of like five and six year olds uh, that were, and it was all girls, it was one of the girls bunks, and half of them were going like, we want to go on a hike, we want to go on a hike, we want to go on a hike. And then the other half of them were going, we want to make s'mores, we want to make s'mores, we want to make s'mores. And so, uh, Max and Jed, they were just like, okay, how about, you know, some of you, you know, people that want to hike, you know, you line up on one side, and the people that want to make s'mores, you line up on the other side, and you guys face each other. And they're like, okay. So they line up, they face each other, and he goes, now fight. The confused look on these girls' faces, they're like, ah, and he goes, I'm just kidding. Here, we're taking this line hiking, we're taking this line to the woods. Thing I'm not going to forget, though. Oh, and by the way, when I say friend's older brother, I mean the incomparable Molly Rose, who also has an interview on this podcast. Uh, what? Oh, 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 yes. And then uh, the hilariousness of the situation that was me going to Spring Lake Farm. Uh, Spring Lake Farm uh, was a day camp. I believe it still exists somewhere in Pennsylvania. It's a fancy one, not one I could normally go to, uh, not normally one I could afford. The reason I was able to afford it was because my family received reparation money for the Holocaust. And I, I mean that, so like the situation, <laughs> and I mean that the, what happened is that uh, my family had a French bank account that was seized by the Nazis. And when, it, in, you know, it was completely drained at the time. And sometime in the 90s, uh, France started giving people their money back. 
So I was able to go to a summer camp, um, and now there is a running gag in the family that I use the Holocaust money to go to a Jewish camp. So that's fun. Uh, and I also went to Girl Scout camp, which was a sleepaway camp, and I can't tell you enough how much that immediately clued me into the fact that I was just totally cool on my own. Like, I was never homesick during that. I'd be gone for a week, two weeks, whatever. I I was never, ever, ever homesick. It's just, I love traveling so much, you know. There was definitely, you know, times where it was getting too hot or, like, somebody else was mean that I'd get homesick or anything like that. But, I, you know, I, my love of travel started early and my need for independence started early. You know, I, I remember that it being a big deal when I was finally allowed to walk up the street to Rite Aid and Target by myself. Like, that was a big to-do. Like, I remember when that happened and being so excited when that happened. Um, and it was the same with uh, Sleepaway Camp. And sleepaway camp was some cool stuff where I learned how to, you know, r ride horses and do campfire stuff, eat really bad food and survive it, all kinds of cool things. Um, there was uh, a couple of instances, a couple of these day camps, uh, where my mom needed to work there in order for me to us to be able to afford me going to camp there. So thank you, thank you, thank you, mom, because I did not... Things that I did not comprehend would be as uh, strenuous as they were until I got older. I'm like, oh my god, you were a <laughs> elementary school teacher the whole year and you don't even get the summer off because you're trying to send me to camp for free. Holy crap. Um, and uh, I got to be a golden fiddler on the roof because my mom was the uh, music teacher at the camp. So that would ensure I get a part in the play, but I'm not supposed to get one of the fancy parts because that would be nepotism. I have a pretty, uh, I, I have a pretty good singing voice, but I, I very much appreciate, you know, nobody's clamoring to be the wife. They're all clamoring to be uh, Hava or all them other humans fiddler on the roof right I've, i firmly believe by the way if you went to like any kind of like jewish theater situation that like it, it's almost an astrological sign of like what did you get cast in uh, as fid in fiddler on the roof and i have that discussion a lot at one point i had a very bizarre trip to disney world and i had a bizarre trip to disneyland i've only been to disney world once and it was uh Halloween of fourth grade. It was because my aunt had a work conference there and managed to get a bunch of discount tickets. So we went down in October and I had the distinct, first off, dressed up as a, a air quotes valley girl. I had not actually seen Clueless, just posters of Clueless and decided that was a valley girl thing. So I had a flip phone, a fake plastic flip phone that went with one of my American girl dolls. I had a feather boa and a little dress, and I wore that around and told people I was a valley girl. And then I also had the uh, distinct honor of uh, seeing people in Disney mascot costumes with costumes over their costumes for Halloween, which I do not know if they still do, but at the time, very, very, very funny. Little bit of a... Uh, I'm glad that I was old enough to not think like, oh, it's actually Mickey. Like, you know, you know, people are costumes at that point. We also told the story of uh, my family getting banned from hiring uh, Barney for birthday parties in this uh, podcast. That was the episode with my brother, episode three. Um, and then the, the trip to Disneyland 
also kind of bizarre because it happened impromptu after a trip. Uh, my my great grandmother uh, was in the process of passing away in Arizona. Uh, she's in hospice and. She wanted to see her last great-grandchild before she passed away, and that was me. So I had a bizarre trip to Arizona with my grandpa, um, and I spent, you know, in addition to meeting Gigi, uh, it was my great-grandmother, I also saw what I think might have been my first big art installation. You know, I'd been to art museums. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever been in an immersive art installation before, but we had some kind of, like, second-removed cousin that was living in Scottsdale uh, at Rosemary. And she took me around Scottsdale doing stuff. I think that it was just, a, there was a lot of, like, entertaining me and distracting me from the fact of why I was actually there. Uh, and I, I think I, I probably was in, like, third or fourth grade at this point. And I won't forget, it was a James Turrell installation. He's a, a big installation artist, does a lot of things with big rooms and light. And I walk into the art gallery and I see a bunch of stairs leading up to a blue square on the wall. And I assume that this is a modern art piece with a bunch of stairs leading up to a blue square on the wall and that's it. And I walk, I start to walk away from it and then I hear a guy go, no, 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 walk in. I'm like, what do you mean, walk in? He's just, no, no, walk in. And I walked up the steps and walked in to the wall, or what I thought was the wall, and it ended up being what seemed like an endless room. I couldn't see the floor. I couldn't see where the room stopped. I couldn't see either side of me. It was just nothing but blue light. It felt like I was just walking suspended in air in blue light. One of the most magical feelings I ever felt, and I was walking for it seemed like a decent clip of time and then i hear from the back don't go past the black line or you'll fall off and i go fall off what didn't respond and then i did see a black line eventually uh at the end and just uh, it was a little crossing thing that it was and i was just like uh I mean, what happened? So I knelt down next to the black line and I reached my hand over it and it was in fact a drop off, but I couldn't see where the ledge started and where the ledge ended. Um, so James Terrell, that, that became a big uh, obsession with art installations from there forward. Uh, and then uh, that became a Disneyland trip because uh, suddenly... And I believe it was due to some health turn in Gigi or something like that. We just had to leave and randomly decided to go to Southern California. Um, I have not been to uh, uh, Huntington, California ever since. I have not even seen that branch of the extended family since. But I did get to go to Disneyland. And it was uh, bizarre circumstances. Nothing specifically bizarre about the Disneyland trip, but it was... Uh, it was bizarre in the sense that I kept hearing, like, my parents get in contact with my grandpa, like, hey, so when is she coming home? And the original plan was not for me to go to California. And he's just like, oh, you know, get back at some point. And I was just sitting there like, they took me out of school. When am I going home? Oh, and then in Arizona, I also have never been to Arizona since uh, R.A.P., some of the giant cactuses have been uh, kicking the bucket in this heat wave. So uh, they, I remember those being impressive. Also, shout out to uh, Crazy Ed's Satisfied Frog, which is a, a, 
I don't remember that many restaurant names from that age, but I sure as hell won't forget that one. Uh, go, you know, if you ever find yourself in that weird area in Arizona, pull off to the side of the road to a little fake western town and get yourself some barbecue at Crazy Ed's Satisfied Frog. We love Crazy Ed. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so formative modern art experience that I had in Scottsdale, and that would eventually lead, uh, I, you know, I ditched visual art after a while, but that would continue to play into me going to art galleries all the time, in particular seeking out immersive installation art. Uh, and I had a really cool internship when I was in high school, an internship at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, they still do these internships and they still exist. It's a museum that's uh, dedicated to uh, fabric works uh, or, you know, things that they have artist residencies. So, you know, people complete art there, but mostly, you know, screen printing on fabric, uh, big sculptures and installations that incorporate fabric or thread or textile in some way, shape or form. Uh, and this was a really cool internship and an interesting, like, bizarre insight into the modern art world because uh, we had, uh, well, it, we had the opportunity to screen print these huge, huge, huge things of fabric. Like, I, I think that mine was, like, almost, it's like, a, a story and a, hang, a half. Um, like, I'm, I'm so bad at, at, like, depth perception and judging distances and stuff like that but it was uh, I remember when we had to when I photographed it uh, me and my high school art teacher hung it on the side of the outside of the building because it was so tall we didn't have anywhere else that we could lay it out fully to photograph it so we just literally tacked it onto the side of the building of my high school and uh, after I'd carried the rolled up cloth all the way from Philadelphia and uh, it was a million uh, by the way it was is a man it was a screen print of repeating screen print of a man with a, a monocle and mustache and top hat and tiny hat top hats everywhere because still weird i'm a weird weird I, I don't know why that was what i decided to do but the fabric itself is now currently in my dad's music studio there's a lot of big pieces of it in my dad's music studio and it is providing some of the cool soundproofing for many of the podcasts that you have heard up until this point. And I also got to assist some modern artists doing two very cool things. First being uh, create an entire wading pool full of iced tea, which they did not tell me what that was. I never ended up finding out what that was for. I think it was for dyeing fabric, but I don't know. We just had a whole day where they're like, here, fill up, here, high school interns, fill up a kiddie pool. And here's uh, 50 or 60 tea bags. And now I... Uh, you need to make this iced tea for us and weird and then uh we also had an incredible day I, I need to look up who this artist is but there's an artist that uh, makes clothing and sews uh keyboard keys onto it keyboard meaning like computer keyboard and we had a great day we were showing up and we thought that we were going to be working on our pieces and they're like hey uh, you can work on your pieces, uh, but we need two students to uh hit a bunch of these keyboards with sledgehammers so this artist can take, you know, this artist in residence needs to, you know, take the keys off and sew them onto this jacket. What a great day. And what a great high school and uh, for letting me do that internship and what, and leave school early uh, to do that internship. And what great parents to continue to let me go into Philadelphia prior to the age of 18. Love it. Uh, 
I also had the opportunity when I was a more visual art person, I learned Raku firing. Uh, Raku firing, if you're not familiar, is the most metal way to fire ceramics. It is the best. It's a, it's a Japanese technique for firing clay. And it's kind of interesting because you can't, unlike, you know, a lot of ceramic firing where you can, you know, like what color the glaze is going to be after you fire it. Like they have little tiles of like, this is what it looks like when it's done. Uh, Raku firing is interesting because you can't really predict what the glaze is going to do. Raku glaze has, is a different kind of glaze that can handle higher heat and it can reflect a couple of different colors just depending on how the firing process goes and then uh, the clay always turns black usually a lot of ceramics the clay is still when you fire it it's the same color as it was when you put it in like it's usually red clay or gray clay and if you don't put any kind of glaze on it it remains the same color it's just fired uh, Raku firing when you do it it turns very uh, smoky black because of the high heat situation uh, the way Raku firing works is that you don't have a regular kiln a lot of people use a structure like a like a, or like a ceramic kiln uh, it's either just like a like ceramic kilns, they're kind of like cylinders. They look kind of like much smaller version, much 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 smaller version of like a like a grain silo or something. Uh, there's cylinders, and they you know they're ovens, and they heat things up. Uh, but the raku kilns, they are just the shell of that. There's no uh, lid on top of it. There's no top on top of the kiln. There's no uh, power source or anything like that. A lot of times they'll use a kiln that's already broken and just the shell of it or some other kind of structure. And they stick a gas hose into the side of it uh, and then uh, light the gas hose on fire or rather light the, you know, the gas emission on fire. So it's just straight flames going into this uh, small enclosed area where you have the pieces are. And then while the pieces are still hot, you remove them with tongs and then you drop them into a basket that's full of paper, which also immediately bursts into flames. Uh, and then you take it out of the paper basket and then you drop it into water, which quickly cools it. And for this, you had to wear like a full welder kind of equipment, the gloves, the tongs and everything. Visual art is so cool. You know, I, I, I hate what's happens to a lot of the visual art programs. And I hate that, you know, a lot of schools that even have visual art programs don't give you access to like nuts shit like this, you know. And then at a pretty early age, I also started taking the Chinatown bus up to New York um, to see all of the art galleries in the meatpacking district and see all of those art installations. And that, that contributes to a whole suite of weird memories as well. You know, there's this one time scrappy teenager me went up to the meatpacking district galleries and I saw this installation where it, there was a bed in the middle of the room and someone was passed out in it. And I go look at the wall and it said that there was a rotating group of performers that agreed to be uh, drugged and pass out in this bed on a, a, a shift schedule. Awesome. Uh, 
<laughs> there was another time I went to a, Car a Karsten Holler exhibit where they had a sensory deprivation tank that you had to wait in a ridiculously long line for, but I would like read about things in Art of America and then I would go see them. And I waited, I'd never done it, you know, later I would do like when float tanks kind of came into vogue and more of like, you know, the inception of like Joe Rogan's podcast, Duncan Trussell, all that stuff when sensory depth tanks became more popular. Uh, but this art installation one didn't know anything about it. Uh, I do the thing, I get out, uh, and I, you know, I try to shower and do everything I'm supposed to, but I did not, uh, apparently do enough because then I left, a um, a trail of salt all the way through the new museum, but I was by myself, uh, so nobody was really looking for that. I don't know. <laughs> I also worked with Isaiah Zagar. This is a weird, this is a weird one. Uh, Isaiah Zagar is known in Philly for having the Magic Garden, which is an insane uh, mosaic garden made of like, recycled bottles and tiles and all kinds of other stuff that the city used to constantly try to condemn that is now uh, as like an unsafe structure. And it's now just a museum and a uh, treasure among South Street. Isaiah Zagar's, uh, Mosaics can be seen all over South Street, all over Philadelphia. If you've ever been to the Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore, you can see that all over the facades. It's the, He has amazing mosaics all over the facades of that. And I, I worked with him one day. And for some reason after that, I had some kind of weird social anxiety blip and I didn't go back. And I still wonder about that. Like, why didn't I just continue working with him? What was, you know my damage with that you know he's like I could have been it's one of those like weird life regrets I'm like what what weird social anxiety thing made me it kept me from going back there over and over again but I did I, I did a nice long day of like cleaning and helping out with that kind of stuff and I a tour bus pulled in front of the magic garden it was taking pictures and I just yelled at them it's weirder being on the inside looking out and I also, it was also because, uh, I, I left a business card with him, uh, like, when I was in high school, I had these business cards, I was being so, so, like, I think high school, early junior high, I had these business cards that were like, yeah, Hannah Harkness, I'm a creative mind, and then he left a message, Isaiah Zagar left a message on my parents' voicemail, hey there, I would love to work with you, I have a creative mind too. So, Isaiah, uh, no way you would remember me. I was only there once, and no way you would be even less of a way you'd be listening to the podcast. I'm sorry I didn't come back. It was, uh, it was one of those anxiety things where I felt like, uh, and, and this happens a lot, where I do something, and then the pressure of the commitment turns, kind of prompts me to ghost, and... I never really got that, uh, but, you know, I don't have that many weird little, like, what, what would have happened if I had, uh, done this, that, the other thing, but I, you know, that, that was definitely one of them, so, de you know, definitely check out Isaiah Zagar's work, he's awesome. I'm really glad that I didn't go to visual art school, you know, I, I went over this with, uh, Mr. Quigley, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that I dedicated so much time and energy to visual art in high school, and I'm actually sitting in a room in my parents' house that has several of my drawings and screen prints and stuff like that sitting around me. I've, like, plenty of high school sketchbooks. I also had the standard, you know, junior high anime fan copying the anime into your book yeah like i i feel like most anime 
people that can draw even a little bit had a phase of like i'm copying the anime characters not even necessarily tracing just copying them out uh it's i'm glad i didn't do it i'm glad i did city year instead because i remember getting cold feet at those portfolio reviews and thinking that it, it wasn't going to be it and i i'm glad i didn't do it but i'm also glad that i have this like lifelong appreciation for art and i was given the opportunity to uh, explore it when i was in uh, junior high high school youth and uh going to all the museums and everything like that so going from there i think uh that's that's pretty much everything that i would want to cover you know like high school or elementary school that i missed moving on to college uh there wasn't much that i didn't cover uh that i'm not going to cover in the next couple of episodes i have an episode coming up with uh somebody I knew in Norway I did uh, Norway when I did study abroad and I have another episode coming up that I'm excited about uh, with my former boss at the sex shop which is also technically a college era episode that's mostly when I was working there it was like 2007 to 2012 and now uh, we are remix I'm going to be working at FetishCon with her because I need extra independent contract work I'm broke um, but I think the only two things that I didn't really bring up were my or rather the one thing I didn't bring up as a topic were some of the jobs I was working while I was there. Uh, two really good ones. Uh, I was a, uh, I was a Liberty Tax Service waiver. Uh, what's a waiver, you may ask? A waiver, not W-A-I-V-E-R as in something you sign. I mean, uh, W-A-V-E-R as in the act of waiving. Uh, what Liberty's tax service waivers do is they dress up as the Statue of Liberty between the months of January and April, specifically until tax day, and hold a sign and dance or point or gesture at traffic. So I used to stand on the side of traffic dressed up as the Statue, and I'm sure you've seen this. Liberty Tax Service is a nationwide chain. They do it with the uh, Statue of Liberty costume. They also do it with the Uncle Sam costume and still standard stuff. And I used to get stoned out of my goddamn mind and put industrial goth music in my ears and just dance like nobody was watching even though everybody in oncoming traffic was watching and zone out and i liked that job way more than any human ever could normally people would think that was degrading i was just like you're gonna pay me to disassociate and dance in a stupid costume in front of oncoming uh, oncoming traffic let's fucking go and it was freezing too. Like I don't the, the things that I don't get. I like why I was completely gassed on this job when it was like fucking freezing is just uh, t totally beyond me. My boss uh, was Topher Kusumato is my boss, and he is now a uh, fucking badass director. You might have seen if you are a fan of queer media, you may have seen uh, Slag Wars, Hot House. Uh, he's the he's the daddy TV guy now, and he fucking rocks. And at the time he was my boss, he was also uh, my college buddy. We were in gender studies classes together. Uh, but yeah, he worked with he was my boss at that job, and then he 
also had a brief stint working at my other job. I was a uh, I was a security person. I I think I touched on this briefly in the college episode. Uh, I had a front desk security position at a men's shelter, a Salvation Army's men's shelter, and I am still not 100% sure how that happened because, you know, uh, Salvation Army is supposed to be a pretty homophobic organization, and yet my boss was gay. I showed up like, I'm queer, and then she seemed to just keep hiring other queer people. So it's just a strange little, I don't know if it was like oppositional defiance on her part or what exactly was happening at that branch that they just didn't care. But that was a formative experience for me for sure because I learned that homelessness, and this is, or rather being unhoused, and this is something that I would not have known and something that I constantly have to tell people that are grown-ass people because society just does not seem to get this message across. Unhoused people have jobs a lot of the time. Uh, guys living in my shelter, a lot of them were working at the Burger King up the street and they couldn't afford a place. And this is in uh, 2007 to 2011. So rent still not quite as insane as it is now, but it still couldn't be covered by... Uh, a Burger King salary or several other kinds of salaries. The other thing that it taught me, and this kept me very much in line in college, is that uh, alcohol, more than weed and more than most things, honestly, uh, you know, they, they like to spread this myth that, you know, homelessness happens because you're not working hard enough, that you're lazy or, you know, you made a bunch of bad boy choices and get your shit together. Um... Yeah, maybe this counts as a life choice, but I want to say that this was the biggest wake-up call that alcohol can ruin your whole goddamn life. Most of the, like, a lot of those guys in there, you know, I'm not going to say most of them, but holy shit, a lot of those guys had the same story, and that was like, uh, I had a wife and family, I was a teacher, you know, in Villanova or something, then I hit the bottle too hard, I have alienated all of my family and friends, no one wants to deal with me. And if nothing will put you off college binge drinking like that, you know, like I've said previously before on this podcast, I also learned how to drink with the comic book industry in actual bars and was kind of put off by the normal binge drinking thing. I didn't want to drink shitty tasting liquor, but I also had the scared straight method of not drinking too much in college when I had these constant (laughs) cautionary tales of like, yep. Uh, you, you drink, you can ruin your whole goddamn life. And uh, that it's, a, it's an incredible wake-up call. And I am always happy I did that job. There was also a really in- <laughs> fucking crazy night where um, in 2008, the Phillies won the World Series. And I was in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and there's no reason that there should have been a Phillies riot in Westchester. It is four, 45 minutes south of Philadelphia proper. And yet, and yet, there was still a Phillies riot somehow but that night uh i was working at the shelter and i let the guy you know they have bedtimes and bed checks and all that kind of stuff and i let the guys stay up to watch the series because i'm not a monster um and then we won so i was like oh let's go out in the street for a tiny bit you know see what's going on so we went outside and we cheered a little bit celebrated a little bit and then i was like all right cool Time to go to bed, guys. So everybody goes to bed. I clock out for my shift at midnight. I walk onto the street, and we got shit on fire. We got cops. We got SWAT people. We got 
mayhem and chaos uh couch we had a cars getting flipped a car like a couch being thrown out the window all kinds of madness and i'm just like the societal stigma on homeless people you know like these are i'm like i just put all of the people that you uh have deemed to be uh criminals uh, you know because it was also kind of a halfway house situation of course you know it's a men's shelter it's it's renowned for being safer than philly shelters and everything like that and i'm just like i just put a chunk of society to bed that has a massive stigma on it and people probably from some of these dudes will like see these dudes coming and cross the street like panicking like they're gonna be mugged or something and i'm like yeah they're sound asleep and they're ready to wake up and go to work in the morning and now i got and i got college kids running around here setting everything on fire I just just never short on reality checks, you know, not not once, not at any point. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think that that's that's a good uh, selection of B sides. I think for uh, things that I have not covered in the first uh, half of this podcast. Uh, and then when I say half, I mean uh, I'm going to record this memoir up until what I perceive to be present day. And I'm not going to keep up with it. I'm not going to, like, just wait five years and be like, oh, we got to do another memoir episode. Now, once I get to about, like, 36, age 36 with this project, I mean, that is, if it continues until November, November 5th is my birthday. Um, But I am uh, going to stop this and just leave that, like, here, guys, this is the memoir. And now that we've done this episode, I feel like it is slightly more uh, completist, less... Uh, some boyfriend and girlfriend nonsense, uh, less some medical trauma. We can, but like I said, we can add that to the movie later for sad dramatic effect. But you guys don't need to hear about uh, the botched spinal tap. That's a that's a fucking downer. And you guys don't need to hear about all the dumb heart getting broken stuff. That's also a downer. I'm probably going to address the the me getting into like poly and kink and how that affected dating in the episode with uh, Callie Morgan for Sexploratorium uh but that will be coming up later in the show so there you have it that is our halftime that is our recap uh and that is a bunch of silly 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 things that I have done and lived I love you uh, thank you so much for listening all the way up to this point. Uh, we got a nice little chunk of my life left. We are going to be talking about the two episodes I referenced, and then we got a whole buttload of stand-up comedy. We got a nice, woo. I gave up my whole 20s to that. I still don't, it's still difficult to wrap my head around how much uh, stand-up comedy nonsense, and then we got to move, and then, you know, that we got to move to me to New York. We gotta get me out of stand-up comedy and into wrestling, and then we can wrap this baby up. Hopefully I don't immediately die, so that's not the entire memoir, but just the one up until this point. Thank you for being my amnesia insurance. I love you. Have a good night. (laughs) 